Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am here in the third sub-basement studio of Deep State Radio here in the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., Not too far from here, in an undisclosed location, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Elsewhere in Washington, D.C., we have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. And in London, England, we've got Corey Shockey of (laughs) IISS. As you know from our last episodes, um, we uh, were talking about the extraordinary events of Monday when... President Trump met, uh, as he seemed to have been hoping for uh, since his teenhood, Vladimir Putin. Um, uh, By the way, there was a cartoon in the New York Times about Trump dreaming of his meeting with Putin, which was just (laughs) unbelievable. I don't know if you guys saw it, but there's, there's this New York Times thing. It's an animated cartoon. And it has Trump and Putin and French kissing and oh my God! Ah, I, d- I absolutely do not want that visual. And, well, I just encourage Yuck. you know, how bad it is. It is hilarious, and I was like, "The New York Times? This is the New York Times? I can't believe it." Um, but you know, we've we've all had a little bit of time to think about this, and we've even seen you know Trump you know backtracking, and I want to pick up with what was kind of uh, one of the events of Monday that I thought was the most interesting because it hinted further at maybe something happening within your party, Corey. There may just be a stirring, a little tiny stirring of decency. Um, Oh, inshallah. That would be uh, almost 18 months overdue on the part of my party in Congress and actually throughout the country. I hope, hope, hope that proves correct because it would be um, uh, my political party deserves to be uh, defunct if we do not stand up for the values that we have claimed we believe in at this time. And by the way, that doesn't mean the day after Trump is 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 tossed out of office, right? You know, there there comes a moment where it's the question of when did you stand up? One of the people who stood up, and I and I this is who I want to ask you about, is Dan Coates, who is yeah, a three chairs for the director of national intelligence, right? When and it, this is kind of an unexpected right. thing. This is a conservative Republican from Indiana. Um, and you might have expected him to sort of follow the party line, but he so, was the first person uh, 
to essentially stand up to Trump. And he issued a statement without clearing it with the White House saying, no, you're wrong. We stick with our assessments. So it actually goes back further than this. The cabinet meeting, the weird North Korean cabinet meeting where everybody was falling over themselves to talk about how much they're privileged to be the president's factotum and that the Secretary of Defense deservedly gets an enormous amount of credit for not having taken that route. Uh, there was one person who spoke before Jim Mattis did as they went around the cabinet table, and it was the director of national intelligence, Dan Coates. Coates was the first person to say um, it's a privilege to re represent the people of the American intelligence community who day in, day out risk their lives to serve this country. Right. So so the secretary of all defense, admirable and wonderful as he is, was following the lead of the director of national intelligence. So um, Dan Coates deserves an enormous amount of credit, not just today when he insisted on the integrity and independence of the American intelligence community, but also in advance of today. So I agree with you. I, I start the stopwatch earlier than you do, David. Well, no, it's good. It's 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 good to hear. Um, as you look out there, Rosa or Ed, do you see other signs of conscience in the Republican Party anywhere that that give you hope? Well, I, you know, I think that we've seen. Obviously, John McCain has been pretty good on on all these issues. Um, we've seen. You know, people like Jeff Flake, uh, uh, Bob Corker coming out and openly criticizing Trump. But but I, I think that the, you know, where the rubber hits the road uh, for members of Congress who are Republicans is in their voting behavior. You know, what do they do with the enormous power that they have? Um, uh, and at the moment, the answer is nothing when it comes to reining in Trump's behavior um, that the Republicans in Congress, I think, have been happy to get the tax cuts that they wanted and happy to essentially sell their soul in exchange for ideological victories uh, on various domestic issues that in the long run uh, are going to be far less, uh, uh, are, are not going to weigh very heavily in the balance of the, the devastating things that Trump is doing, both internationally and to the rule of law and the democratic process. So, so I'm not, you know, it's always nice to see. I mean, even even Paul Ryan came out with some sort of statement uh, uh, earlier this week saying, "Well, Russia is actually an adversary," um, but but you know, talk is cheap. Um, it doesn't mean much. They they we we have a government. That's right. You know, the the, the whole idea of of having uh, you know three parts to our government: the judicial branch, the executive branch. Uh, and the legislative branch is supposed to be that it's you don't go too far off the rails because eventually it gets sort of balanced out. And, you know, when a president starts going off the rails, he can be reined in by Congress and the courts. We've seen some judicial efforts to rein in Trump. Um, we sure haven't seen anything from Congress. Ed, you sometimes go out there outside of Washington, D.C. You take a wrong turn on the beltway. You end up among the yeah, great, I mean, it's possible to just end up in Iowa by accident, right? Or you know, Indiana. I know you. I know you were in Gary, Indiana once. Two days later, 
<laughs> right. Two <laughs> days later, you wonder you wonder why things look so different. Um, um, and and you even you even you you go to Middle America periodic. Didn't you once take like a road trip across America in like a trailer? Uh, not quite a not quite a trailer. Um, it was just an ordinary rental car, but actually several. I mean, uh, if you if you count all the times I have been to Iowa, um, but you know, in the last um, few weeks, I confess I've been more traveling to various uh, events outside of America than in Middle America. Um, I do though think what Rosa said about the politics of this uh, and her, her wonderful uh, um, imitation of Paul Ryan, uh, that Russia is an adversary, um, you know, sort of encapsulated it perfectly. Ryan, Mitch McConnell, all the rest saying occasionally with a vague tut-tutting sort of, well, we've got to remember Russia's an enemy and um, they did interfere in 2016, is the equivalent of voting for a non-binding resolution. It's just putting on the record, oh, look, I did say that. It's thoughts and prayers. Exactly. It's thoughts and prayers. It is not action. It is a placeholder. It is a, uh, a poor facsimile of action. And we should see it for what it is, um, which is a cop-out. Um, so, I, you know, I don't have um, recent road trips to report back from, but um, I think the reason why they are... Um, remaining so spineless in their in their um, response to Trump is because Trump's poll numbers with the base remain as strong as they have been. Um, uh, and so the key to this is going to be looking at the uh, sort of ecosystem of the media that feeds the base. Uh, you know, some people I've noticed have picked up on various daytime Fox News personalities, Neil Cavuto being one of them, John Roberts another, um, complaining about how Trump um, handled the Helsinki summit and the NATO summit. Um, but the nighttime crowd, the Laura Ingrahams, the Ann Coulters, the um, um, Sean Hannity and, and um, people like that, uh, I doubt very much they're going to be pivoting. If they do, uh, if they do turn on Trump, then the base might change its view. But you have to ask, where does the base get its information from? It's not from statements Paul Ryan gives to the AP. It's 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 from the it's from the echo chamber that they consume, uh, and exclusively in most cases ex, uh, um, consume. They have no alternative sources. Of inverted commas information, right, and and the and the centrality of Fox News to the perpetuation of this travesty um, is not to be underestimated. And in fact, the former president of Fox News is now the deputy White House chief of staff, despite a history of covering up um, uh, sexual abuse within Fox News. Um, but as we think about the 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 ripples from the, the, the Mueller indictment, from the uh, Trump uh, uh, insults to our allies, the Trump visit with Putin to, uh, to the subsequent arrest of a woman who, by the way, was working to infiltrate the NRA long before Trump was uh, uh, the candidate on behalf of the Russian government. So the Russian government, when they said, we're going to go and get into the Republican Party, 
saw the NRA as one of their first stops. But one of the, the you know, what I, I'm interested in is, well, so where, where do the ripples go? What are the aftershocks? And one of the communities, of course, favored by the Sean Hannity's of this world and the Laura Ingrahams and so forth, is in fact, you know, we should play some theme music here, the deep state, where they say, well, look at the intelligence community, look at the national security community, they're out to get them. Often overlooked in all of this is, of course, that the deep state, um, which doesn't exist as such, um, is really large communities of patriotic people who've devoted themselves to public service, whether in law enforcement and intelligence or in the military. And I I recall a quote from Monday, a tweet from Monday, which went like this, and I'll pull it up here on the screen and read it to you because I think— It resonated with me, Corey, and I'd be interested in your response to it. Um, It's from General Michael Hayden. uh, And he says the following, listen to this man, trust me. Now, this is Mike Hayden, one of our former top intelligence officials. And he then quotes General Mark Hurtling, who many of you may have seen on television from time to time. And Mark Hurtling says... For those gobsmacked and disgusted by what you just saw, imagine being part of the military leadership in the Pentagon or in Europe or anywhere in the intelligence community as you really, and that's all in quotes, have information that makes this unfathomable. Lots of bourbon for them tonight. And without instilling further silly deep state conspiracy theories, Corey, what do you think the effect is of the behavior of the president on the people at the heart of the national security community who actually may very well have more information about this than the public? Uh, So a couple of things, David. The first is only I am the war act speaks for all veterans. So, So I can only give you one taxpayer's opinion on this. But if I were in the intelligence community or uh, standing sentinel in any other way to defend our country tonight, it would be profoundly discouraging to me to try and navigate the rot at the core of our country that the president isn't willing to protect us against all Um, enemies, foreign and domestic, that he appears to be encouraging enemies of our country, both foreign and domestic. So a discouraging day for the Sentinels of America's liberty. Um, The other thing I would think if I were them is that, um, that there are The great thing about the American government is that there are actually an inordinate amount of ways to influence the outcome. You can try and make the many checks and balances internal to the system work. You can make end runs to either the courts or the legislature, the other two institutional checks and balances on executive power. You can lead to the news media, which many well-meaning patriotic Americans do when they fear their government has run off the rails. 
you can offer yourself as a public sacrifice um, on those same terms by publicly taking ownership of your views. What's so so what I learned working in the Bush White House from 2001 to 2005 is that the First Amendment genuinely is properly the First Amendment. It's the one that protects everything else. And the second thing is that uh, there are lots and lots of ways to try and keep your government honest. And the great, beautiful, poignant, patriotic reaction I have in times like this is how many Americans find creative civil society ways to hold their government accountable. Rosa, you've spent a lot of time in the Pentagon um, and within the military community. How do you think they take this? Can it be that a Republican president could lose the military, lose the base by being seen as... um, you know, effectively uh, an, an enemy or a friend of the enemy of the U.S.? You know, I my sense, and I, I have no way to quantify this, um, um, but certainly my sense from the military people I talk to is that, uh, you know, that there is the same degree of shock, horror, confusion, dismay uh, uh, over in the Pentagon that we have been feeling and expressing on deep state radio, um, certainly within the military leadership. Um, I think that there there is, you know, significant representation of, of Trump's base, which is less educated white guys uh, in the military as well, um, particularly in the enlisted corps who are who are more loyal to him and probably paying somewhat less close attention to these issues. Um, I don't know what that group will do because I think that they're probably being pulled in two directions at the moment. Um, so I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, in 15 years ago, uh, I think it would have been accurate to say that the officer corps was further to the right uh, than the enlisted, the body of enlisted personnel. Um, today, I think in some ways that's reversed, although, although I think it's, it still is not a homogeneous group in either the enlisted or the, uh, uh, commission side of the military. Um, you know, but I, but I do think it's, it's, it, it remains a question that we asked at the very beginning of the Trump administration. Um, and I think still have to ask today, you know, at what point, uh, do, do military officers decide that their, their oath to, protecting the defend the Constitution of the United States um, calls for behavior that is different than what Trump is asking them to do. Uh, I, I think it's very, very difficult to get a military officer to that point. Um, Can I add, deep, I'm yeah, sorry, go, Rosa. Just, I, no, go ahead and I, jump in, Corey. I didn't mean to trample in. I just wanted to add one thing. The very best commentary on civil military relations ever was Elliot Cohen it, during the 2000 election. You will recall during the late 1990s, the officer corps had become quite um, prissy and and judgmental of their elected political leaders. And Elliot Cohen said in 2000 that he thought it was enormously important for George W. Bush to get elected because it was uh, important to the country to have Republicans, to have the military start hating Republicans again. 
And I feel like we're <laughs> sort of at that same place, right? Because yep. President Trump has tried to cloak himself in the honor and the respect that the American people have for the military. And he has been damaging to the military in the way he has done it. Um, I, I actually think it's going to be quite damaging to the United States Marine Corps to have had so many former Marines closely associated with this administration. Because uh, when the reckoning comes, uh, that's right. That that's actually going to be really damaging both to the military as an institution and explicitly to the Marine Corps for being so publicly associated at very high levels. And that is extraordinarily healthy for civil military relations in our country. Um, that's true. Now, let me play a little bit of a game here. We've got, you know, 20 minutes to go. And I, let's play a little bit of a game. And I will turn to you first uh, with the game. Um I like games. No, no, I, I, I know that. Uh, Can we win money? No. <laughs> um, yes, I have a dollar here on the table. <laughs> Let's um, get a betting pool going, David. Yeah, oh, that's a good idea. Could, could you imagine we could have a deep state? No, it's probably against the law, but we could, I don't know, Ian, you know, we could have a big, you know, deep state betting pool on like, you know, Trump's departure date. But uh, no, that's not what I was getting at. What I'm getting at is the following. Tr- 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 Mueller has come out with this uh, indictment. There has another arrest that followed that. There will be more indictments. It's going to be very, very clear that you can't deny what the Russians were doing. And in the wake of Trump trying to deny it, everybody came down on him. Coates came down on him. Richard Burr, senator, the head of the Intelligence Committee in the Senate, came down on him. Lots of people came down on him. It's very, very difficult to make that case anymore. So you start to see the Republicans starting to make other cases like, well, yeah, the Russians did this, but we do it too. Or, yeah, the Russians did this, but it didn't tip the scales in the election. Or, yeah, the Russians did this, but... And that's the game. What do you think the the new party line is going to be once we accept that all this actually happened? I think that the Mike Pence statement... Um, Well, both the Trump and the Mike Pence statements after the Helsinki conference, uh, after the Helsinki summit, give a pointer. They tend to take their cue from the top. And of course, Pence takes his cue from Trump. And Trump says, look, I trust my intelligence. Um, I I trust, uh, in other words, he was responding to the Dan Coates statement. I trust my intelligence, uh, but we have to look forward to the future and to look to the prosperity and security of the United States. Um, And, you know, I forget the exact wording, but, you know, Russia, the Russian nuclear issue has to be um, solved. So it's going to be let bygones be bygones. We've got to move on as a republic. Um, We can't allow these partisan games about the past to drag us down. You know, if you do that, we'll... we'll, um, go back on to why the FBI didn't seize Hillary's server and other pointers Trump also gave in the Putin press conference. I think it will, it, it will, it will just, it will just follow Trump's cue. Either of you guys want to play where you think this is going to go next, the next line 
as the as the Republicans try to say everything's normal, don't freak out. Yeah, the Russians did this, but I mean, we, as the story it evolves, all happened during the Obama administration. <laughs> They've been trying that line. So yeah, that's why the Penn statement is so important. He's whistling two things past the graveyard. Thing one is this is about the past, not the present. Today demonstrates it's about the present. President Trump's behavior today demonstrates it's about the present, not about the past. The second thing Pence is trying to signal is, but Gorsuch, but Supreme Court, but tax cuts, trying to bank on the fact that the Democratic Party is an organization of interest groups, whereas Republicans have the discipline to to avert their eyes from the disgrace and denigration and endangering of the country in order to achieve those objectives. And we conservatives have to say that's not good enough. Um, Yes, well, I think everybody has to say that, by the way. I do think when it becomes a national security issue, it's not a political issue. Excellent point, David. We all need to say it, but the people who currently are not saying it are my fellow conservatives. Um, Yes. There's no there's 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 no denying that Um, one of the things that you do, Rosa, that's so important on all of these shows is you you draw the lines. You tell us where the the, you know, what side of we are we are on. For example, we mentioned the last episode of whether or not it's a constitutional crisis or not. Um, When I can't help it, I can't help it. I'm a law school graduate. I know. I know that. So tell me. If you were a, if you were a member of Congress, at what point does it become unavoidable to talk about impeachment? It seems to me that we're there. I mean, I, and I do think um, if I can if I can briefly quote the Bible. Uh, uh, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I think that the Republicans in Congress who are, you know, willing to trade justices in the Supreme Court and tax cuts uh, uh, and get that in exchange for letting go of the rule of law and letting go of American democracy, uh, that's called losing your soul, you know, and and history is not going to judge them kindly. I, you know, I think that we are at that point uh, right now. Um, where it, it, it should be happening. It's probably not going to, but it should be happening. Um, yeah, I certainly agree with you on that. And I think that uh, it's going to actually take a election in November to get a sufficient number of people to say that. But, 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 but we ought to be saying it right now. Ed, you mentioned that you travel outside of the U.S. One of the things we haven't really talked about in the wake of uh, Trump's meeting in Helsinki is the aggregate effect of his meeting in Helsinki, um, his meeting uh, in NATO, his meeting in the UK, uh, the giant baby blimp. Gotta be the worst trip ever taken by a U.S. president outside this country since Theodore Roosevelt took the first such trip in 1901. Um, <laughs> that was for you. That was for you, Court. I curtsy my thanks to you, David. Yes. Um, but, um, Ed, what do you think the taste left in the mouth of 
Europeans is now that Trump is gone. If perhaps you've spoken to people in the UK or elsewhere. What's the post-visit buzz? Well, one of the disturbing things um, about the effect of the Trump visit, as it happened, was you remember um, he gave that interview to The Sun where he you know, handed a loaded gun to Boris Johnson by saying that um, her Brexit plan, plan was useless and it, it would rule out a US-UK free trade deal and Boris Johnson would be a great prime minister. Um, one of the disturbing things about that unprecedented attack on a host nation of a close ally, um, uh, whilst, on, uh, whilst the president was on the soil of that ally, was um, that the Brexiteers in the Conservative Party all rushed to President Trump's defence. There was not a unified um, response from the British electorate uh, or from their, rep their representatives, particularly the Conservative Party, to Trump. Um, there was a divided response, um, which is a very close echo of the polarization we're seeing in American politics. And so I think that another thing that makes this unusual, and we have discussed this before, this Trump trip unusual, is the direct interference of every leader uh, in the internal politics, of every leader to whom he spoke with the exception of Vladimir Putin. He had nothing to say about internal politics in Russia. He had plenty of um, damaging and critical things to say, as he has before, about what's going on inside Britain, what's going on inside Germany and elsewhere. Um, so I think um, it would be tempting to say um, that uh, the effect of this Trump visit is to unify the West, but actually it's to further disunite the West, I'm afraid. Um, the governments, such as they are, of Macron, Merkel and May might pull closer together with one or two others, such as the Dutch. Um, but their own internal um, uh, uh, authority and legitimacy is waning. Trump is doing the be his best to accelerate that waning. And other partners, erstwhile partners, such as Italy, are already essentially in Trump's camp. Uh, so uh, I, th I think the, the, West, the West is not going to hold. Um, I, I think we are in a very, very deep crisis, and Trump is aiding and abetting it. Well, let me go back to you, Corey, quickly before um, uh, before turning to Rose on this. What is your take? Uh, same question, the totality of the trip. I agree entirely with Ed's points just now. I think the question is not, is the United States upholding the international order that we constructed and that has made us and so many others safe and prosperous in the last 70 years. I do not think the question is, is the United States openly destructive and antagonistic to that liberal international order? Because I believe under Donald Trump, we are. I think the question is, for how long can the order be sustained by well-meaning middle powers like France, like Britain, like Germany, like Canada, like Japan, like Australia. I mean, the Australians have been fighting on the front lines of the preservation of the international order. The countries that are upholding the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership after we pull out, the countries that are 
um, bravely as middle-sized powers subject to intimidation by Russia or China, um, doing the good work of preserving their domestic cohesion and the rule of law and exposing subversive influences in their societies. Those are America's natural allies. Those are the people we are failing right now. And, and the question is, how long can the order hold before those noble states, longtime friends and allies of us begin to buckle under the weight of a system we are destroying? Gee, Rosa, that sounds I'm like... I'm not sure I can add anything to you're, that. <laughs> you're going to have to hand over the thorny crown of entropy. Well, today we all wear the thorny crown of entropy, David. Yeah, well, I think that I think we may be wearing it for some time. But it does go to a bigger point, which is in the United States, in the wake of the meeting on Monday in Helsinki and Trump, we think, what does this mean for Trump? What does this mean for our democracy? Um, how awful this is. We've never seen this kind of thing. Uh, but of course, Putin's goal isn't just getting rid of Trump. Putin's goal is undermining the Western democracies. He has attacked uh, the UK. He's attacked France. He's attacked Germany. He's attacked Italy. He's attacked Central European countries, uh, all with the same purpose. He has funded opposition groups. He has, he has funded division in all of these countries. Um, and so you could have any of a dozen outcomes in the United States um, that would still serve Putin's overall outcome, which he seeks. I think that's it, a, right. Yeah. Which, Confusion to our enemies. Well, right. Which just is to undermine the Western alliance. And that seems to be what both Ed and, and Corey are suggesting is underway. I think I, I think you know Putin would if there was a prize for cleverest manipulation of adversaries on the world stage, Putin would certainly uh, win it at this point. You know I don't think he's some sort of genius mastermind chess player who's seeing thirty years into the future. I think he is thinking relatively short term, but but in terms of his short term aims of uh, you know undermining the uh, NATO alliance, undermining the transatlantic alliance, undermining uh, most of the core alliances that have been important to the United States, causing confusion, uh, demoralization, et cetera, amongst those who he views as, as adversaries uh, in terms of his own ability to advance Russia's interests and, more importantly, his own interests. I think Vladimir Putin does care much more about his own financial and political interests than about uh, the long-term well-being of Russia or its people. You know, he, he's doing incredibly well. He's been very, very skillful. And, and he's he realized, I think, very early on, you know, you don't have to get your guy into the presidency, although that's always a nice thing, uh, if you can just cause everybody to uh, spend all of their time squabbling with each other, doubting each other, mistrusting each other, and being unable to function in a coordinated matter. And he's been extremely successful at doing that. And I think, I think that that's why, you know, his strategy, the Russian strategy in terms of electoral interference, as we've seen with, with Facebook ads, for instance, was not merely to fund stuff that cast doubt on uh, Hillary Clinton, um, was not merely to fund far-right activities, was not merely to engage in various kinds of uh, cyber warfare to undermine uh, the Democratic candidate's chances of winning, but was also to 
take out fake ads on behalf of, of non-existent actions by far left groups, you know, to discredit both the left and the right to get everybody fighting with each other. And the really sad thing is that we Americans basically fell for it on all sides of the political spectrum. We proved ourselves to be eager dupes of Russian manipulation. I th I, th I think that that's I think that that's right. What are the odds, Ed, that this all fit, sort of sort of putters out, right? You know that it that that we go. There's a controversy. There's some hearings. Maybe the Republicans win, and there's we lose our interest in it. I mean, I I, I still wonder. You know, there's a desire always to say there's a tipping point, a turning point, and so forth. Um, but already, you know, in a few days after this trip, you've got the Republicans lining up. They've got a line. They're saying Trump is a visionary, a peacemaker, trying to resolve problems. And, you know, the people who are out to get him just have Trump derangement syndrome and so forth. Do you worry that this might just all end up being sort of the new normal? So it's an interesting way of, of thinking about that that question. I mean, the events that are happening now can look very, very different a few years from now once we're clear what, what their aftermath were. So Helsinki 2018 um, uh, could be the date um, that we use in much the way we talk about Munich, 38, um, where the West sort of disintegrated. Um, or it equally could be the moment we say that the Trump presidency went past a point of no return and, 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 and that was it. Trump was over. And I honestly don't know which it will be. I, I'm pretty confident Helsinki 2018 will be a very significant date in history. Um, I'm pretty confident that the Mueller investigation um, has much further to go. It, it's going to, as we, we've discussed before, um, uh, start bringing into the net more prominent American citizens around the Trump campaign and in it. Um, and I'm pretty confident that um, unless the Republican base um, has a, a fairly big um, sort of kumbaya moment, that they're going to stick with Trump. Um, where that ends up, I don't know. I've always had a sort of... Um, uh, sort of sense in my bones, if nothing else. But I think also, to some to the degree I can use this word, um, an analytic confidence that the most important date is 2020, and and what the American people actually say, um, uh, because uh, you know if they do repudiate, if the electorate does repudiate both electoral college and popular vote wise, Donald Trump, um, uh, his, for his re-election. Um, then I think we can recover from this. Um, if they don't and he is re-elected, I doubt that we can. And, you know, can I just jump in on one, one thing that Ed said? I, I, think, I think it's absolutely right that Trump's hardcore base is unlikely to desert him no matter what, uh, um, because they're voting on personality, not on policy, and they're in a little bubble. Um, I think that the good news is that Trump's base, his hardcore base, is small and shrinking. 
you know, it's a it is a minority of the American people. That hardcore base is maybe 30 percent of the American people. The, the bad news, and we, we've talked about this in previous episodes, is that the nature of our political system gives disproportionate voting power to precisely that minority of the American people. And, and there was a really interesting uh, piece on the sort of changing demographics uh, in the Washington Post, uh, I think late last week, making the point that by the year 2040, which is only 22 years from now, 70% of Americans will live in only eight states. And you might say, oh, well, so what? And obviously it's already skewed, not that skewed. Um, but eight states uh, translates into exactly 16 senators, which means that, you know, 30 percent of Americans are going to uh, have the ability to elect the vast majority of the members of the U.S. Senate. So we have a system that by design skews towards uh, giving extraordinary degree of political power to what is a shrinking minority of the American people. And unfortunately, given just the the current correlations between uh, population density and uh, political voting behavior, uh, that's the Trump base. Well, let me follow up with that with you, Rosa, and then I'll go to Ed. We'll wrap it up there. But, you know, you raise an interesting question that sort of continues on a thread that we sometimes come to here at Deep State Radio in our joint therapy sessions, which we share with 50,000 other people. Um, and that is, we, I don't know if you used this word, but you at one point said something like we fetishize the Constitution. Um, in other words, we sort of take it and sort of treat it as a document that was written on stone tablets uh, by the finger of God and not actually by people. And excuse me, let me just correct a misstatement. Not 70% in eight states, but half the population in eight states. Okay, so half the population in eight Still, states. But, lots. But the, lots. But but I wonder if the the question might not be that the Constitution contains the the seed of of American decline and that it's so hard to amend the Constitution that we are going to have a lengthy period where those other less populous states, which tend to have very, very different views, dominate the majority population of this country um, and produce more of what we've just seen. I think that's possible. I mean, I, you know, David, I know you love it when I quote learned hand. Um, I do. Um, I love it. I love that. <laughs> Um, the, the American jurist with the best name ever. Uh, but, and and, and by the way, I'm sure your parents love it, too, because that is exactly why they sent you to law school. They did. So I would learn how to quote learned hand. Um, but but, you know, his famous quote, which I have quoted before, is is to the effect of, uh, you know, when the Constitution dies in the hearts of men and women, no law uh, can save it. Uh, you know, nothing can save it. It's it's not fundamentally about the Constitution. Um, it's about our cultural attitudes and whether, in fact, we as as a nation have a true commitment to human rights or and to democracy. And the evidence at the moment is suggesting we don't have a particularly strong commitment to human rights and democracy. The Constitution does give us the tools both to amend it and to impeach Donald Trump or to temporarily get him out of office via the 25th Amendment, etc., uh, Congress has all the tools it needs to rein in Trump craziness legislatively. You know, that there's no 
the Constitution isn't locking us in to the direction we're going in. On the contrary, it offers us plenty of avenues for course corrections. I think the trouble is that most Americans and manifestly uh, most uh, in the current congressional majority don't really care. Uh, you know, that they're they're thinking very, very short term. They're not thinking long term at all. And it will be to the detriment of this nation. So I, you know, although I, 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 I absolutely, as I have said before, I do think that we treat the Constitution much too much like it's wholly writ as opposed to a compromise document uh, that is very much a product of, of a particular time and place that in certain ways is not very well suited towards to dealing with the kinds of issues that we face today. Uh, given that, I, I think that fundamentally the Constitution is not to blame for our current situation. The the spinelessness and venality of uh, uh, too many of the American people and too many in Washington is to blame. Well, you know, Ed, on the last episode, I made a comment about how timely David Sanger's book was. And of course, I did that mainly because he was with us and I didn't want to make him feel bad. Um, uh Okay, it was also a it's also a timely book. But if you were going to try to write a book that was even more timely, picking up on Rose's themes and on what we saw in Europe, you might entitle it The Retreat of Western Liberalism. <laughs> Thank you, David. That's a, a nice lollipop. To somebody should write a book like that. Somebody <laughs> somebody should write a book like that. And you did. And I just wonder, you know, as I we sort of look at this and look at what's going on in the U.S. and look at what's going on in Europe and look at the divisions we talked about and look at um, uh, the political trends and so forth, um, how you feel about the thesis. I think the only thing that might be in question right now is whether this is a retreat of Western liberalism or whether or not there is an offensive of other approaches that's actually being successful and driving it back? So uh, I've been having a debate um, with a colleague in recent days uh, uh, on the defense spending question. And uh, one of the points I made where Europe, you know, might, um, at least on the soft power side, um, point, uh, point to a way forward is that uh, there is a target there that we, the OECD countries, the rich countries, spend 0.7% of their GDP on aid. Um, America spends 0.18, so less than a third, barely, um, barely a quarter, in fact, of what it should do. Whereas Germany and Britain are up there at about 0.7, and countries like Canada and Norway are pretty high. Um, and I think that... Um, we forget the degree to which uh, foreign aid is a national security tool. You know, regardless of the debates about whether aid is overrated or effective in terms of development, it, it, it can be a devastatingly effective national security tool. America's Marshall Plan is exhibit A of that. But look at the Green Revolution. Look even at George W. Bush's PEPFAR program on AIDS in Africa. Uh, reason I mention that is because China at the beginning of this century accounted for a quarter of all development finance. It now accounts for three quarters of all development finance worldwide. Uh, the Belt Road Initiative, you know, has many flaws. There's a lot of pump priming, a lot of contracts that aren't put out to tender, a lot of local resentment to generate it in various um, recipient countries. But overall, in macro, 
China's soft power operation is a multiple of the Marshall Plan. It is bringing clean water, electricity, roads, infrastructure to people who don't think about politics, still less geopolitics. Um, uh, it is spreading the attractiveness of the authoritarian model, which now comes with extremely sort of impressive um, high-tech AI bells and whistles. Um, and it is providing an ideological competitor in a way that Putin doesn't really. Putin, as both you and Rosa have said, and Corey earlier, um, you know, is an opportunist. China is a longer-term ideological competitor. Um, and I don't believe we're even beginning to sort of gather ourselves collectively as the West, as liberal democracies, to understand these twin challenges from Russia and China. They're different kinds of challenges, challenge, challenges um, although they are operating in, in affinity um, with each other. So I think the question, you're right, it isn't whether the West is retreating, it's how rapidly it's retreating and whether it can regroup. And I would point back to the former answer about 2020. I think 2020 is epically important for all our futures. So, Rosa, as you know, Corey had to go off to some fabulous London ball and leave us early. That's and what she's doing? She's going to the ball? Oh, I knew it. Something like that. Or she's going to console the queen for having been treated so rudely <laughs> by by Trump. Um so I'm going to turn to you. We just have about 60 seconds here, 90 seconds. Uh, leave us with something upbeat. <laughs> well, the world has not yet perished in a in a ball of fire, and that is a plus. Um, so as Ed suggests, we have about a uh, little over two years oh. to, to, try to get things back on the right track. Hurry up. Let me ask you a question. You have kids. Like, what did you tell them as bedtime stories? Well, <laughs> <laughs> right. No, it, it, it's hard. There's actually an interesting uh, uh, piece in the in op-ed in the New York Times on Monday um, by a guy who talks about his ambivalence about having brought children into the world at this particular moment. And, um, you know, I, I have my moments of worrying about that. I, I, I think that... I think that the odds are that my children will personally be okay. You know, I think that they probably won't starve. They probably won't be caught up in a violent armed conflict. Uh, global climate change will probably not drown them. And I'm glad about that selfishly. Um, but I'm not so sure about my grandchildren. You know, I'm not so sure about my grandchildren's children. I'm not so sure about uh, the children of people living now in other parts of the world. Um, it's a it's a scary world. I don't have a lot to offer my children except what people have told their children in, in other dark times. Um, and this is one of those dark times, which is you've got to be fighting. You've got to be trying your darndest to make this better. You've got to be thinking not just about yourself and your children, a bit about your children's children and your children's children's children and the children of all the people you don't know. So, Ed, how'd she do? Uh I think how did how did Rosa do in in lifting my spirit our spirits? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Which fact is always that, my goal. That the fact that our grandchildren is doomed is, I suppose, better than our children. Um, uh, the um, bedtime stories um, that I used to tell my daughter stopped abruptly on November the eighth, twenty sixteen, because I had been reassuring her that Trump wouldn't win. 
Uh, she's, oh she's treated me with skepticism, deserved skepticism ever since. <laughs> Could you imagine that, like, you know, little kid and every night tucked in and then uh, Trump was elected kid. <laughs> You're on. You're on your own. But but uh, I think in all in all seriousness, David. I mean, your your children are grown up now, and and they're grown up cynics just like us. But but I'm sure Ed sees this. Um, my children, um, I think they do quite genuinely find this rather frightening that they're growing up in a scary world, and that they feel that way. Well, that's by absolutely the... right. Uh, that's well, a, uh, can I tell a very quick um, um, metaphor for what my daughter thinks of me? Is that she would, thinking the equivalent of I was saying the big bad wolf will not blow our house down because we live in a brick house. And she woke up um, with genuine fear because she was, she kept asking me because she was terrified of what Trump, you know, was saying. She was 10 at the time um, uh, uh, to discover we lived in a straw house. Wow. Um, that's a little heavy. You know, a couple months ago, we had a big storm here and the, my little house here in Alexandria has a brick wall around the outside of the house and it blew down and it was like wait a minute i read the three little pigs <laughs> the brick the brick wall's not supposed to blow down so i think that you know is an extended metaphor and by the way rosa my two daughters who are in their mid-20s um feel the same way as your kids do and and ed's daughter does uh which is to say they're really scared and discomfited by this. And I think you have failed miserably in lifting our spirits. And I am sorry, guys, depressed and worry for my children. But I'm delighted that you're here to speak truth uh, to power. And um, I don't know what we'll do for our grandchildren, but we'll save that for a future episode of Deep State Radio. Corey Shockey, wherever you are, Ed Luce, Rosa Brooks, Rosa Brooks's kids, Ed Luce's kid, my kids. Um, we'll see you again next week, probably. Odds are, right, Rosa? Probably next week. <laughs> probably. Probably. And that's, you know, as cheerful as we get around here. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.